Hey, everybody. Welcome to the rooftop. And I am super excited for this episode. It is an Operation Pineapple Express episode as we um, go through the anniversary of the collapse of Afghanistan and, and frankly, the abandonment of our Afghan partners. And um, I felt it was really important to bring on some of the more prolific characters in Operation Pineapple Express and frankly protagonists and just game changers that were that were at the forefront of what happened in this uh, dynamic event and certainly no one more so than Zach Lois. Um, Zach is a former Afghan Green Beret. He served in my old group, 7th Special Forces Group. We did not serve together. He's considerably younger than I am. He was a team leader though in Afghanistan during the Afghan Village Stability Operations Program and did a dynamic job. Just one of the one of the rare Green Berets who has that old school Lorencian mindset, he and his team, and they they really immersed themselves in the local culture, the local environment. And as a result of that, because of the way they threatened the enemy um, and the, the location that they were in the mountains of Shawali Kot, which is northern Afghanistan and just no man's land, they were in gunfights every day and built deep, deep, deep relationships with their Afghan partners, both interpreters, villagers, but also Afghan commandos and Afghan special forces. And Zach was instrumental, man. He was instrumental in every aspect of Pineapple Express. And we're going to talk about that here. We're going to get his perspective. I think this is the first time he and I have ever riffed uh, about this since it happened. So, Zach, welcome to the Rooftop Podcast, my friend. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. I'm very honored to be here. Yeah, it, it is more of an honor to have you here, my friend. Um, well, look, let's let's get into it. I mean, we're in the anniversary period right now. A, a lot is going on. Let me just start with how are you doing? How are you feeling, you know, a year from the day and the period that all of this happened? Yeah, I- I still haven't really been able to kind of put it all into words or really digest everything that's happened. It's been such a a wild and crazy year. Um, You know, it was the most rewarding experience of my life, but also probably definitely the most frustrating. Yeah. You know, after, after the fall of uh, Kabul, and the shutdown of H. Kaya, you know, we continued to try to get people out up until till January when I my leave of absence ended and I went back to teaching. Um, but we, we really, in regards to our Afghan special operations partners, there still hasn't been any kind of solution for them. Yeah, no, you're right. And um, I, 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 I hope that we can bring enough pressure to to make something happen, but it's it's getting harder and harder. Why don't we go back a little ways, um, Zach? Tell us um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of where you grew up and how you um, how you got into the special forces community. Yeah, uh, so I grew up in a small town in rural Wisconsin, and uh, you know, pretty standard childhood. Uh, Sports was, you know, my priority throughout life. Um, as far as becoming a Green Beret, I, I always wanted to, from eighth grade on, I uh, wanted to be a Green Beret. Originally wanted to be a SEAL. I was named after a SEAL. Uh, and then I read a book or a, a magazine article about 
U.S. Army Special Forces and how they were considered the Indiana Joneses of the military. And uh, that absolutely hooked me right there from that point on. Uh, that's really all I, I wanted to do. Um, had the opportunity to be an ODA commander in Afghanistan. That's kind of like the, the pinnacle of, of being in Special Forces. And then uh, after that time was up, um, kind of made the decision to see what else was out there in life. Yeah. You know, it, it strikes me, Zach, in my, and I did about almost two decades as an SF guy. And, and you're right. I mean, the, for officers, the detachment command time is, is truly the pinnacle of it. But I was always struck by the number of Green Berets enlisted and officer who would, would tell a similar story that they knew that this is what they wanted to do from the time they were kids. And um, it never really changed for them. Did you see that at all? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, growing up in a small rural town, uh, you know, I used to read National Geographic magazines of like all the different cultures across the world. And, you know, uh, I wanted to see and prove that, you know, the world didn't fall off at the edge of town. Um, so using the military to kind of get out of my small town was a great opportunity. Uh, I wanted to see as much of the world as I could. Um, and the military seemed like the best option for me, especially special forces, uh, you know, the chance to learn another language, go work amongst other countries. And then even operationally within the military, you know, being that commando uh, deep behind enemy lines and enemy territory, living amongst the locals, wearing their garb, being a guerrilla fighter, um, that all just really appealed to me. Yeah, I, I, it's so funny. It's like we've 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 run such similar miles, but just in different places and different times. But my little town that I grew up in in Mount Ida, Arkansas, like we didn't even have a stoplight. I don't think we still do. And uh, I loved it, but I was definitely looking for special forces as a way to 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 push myself out into the world. And I, yeah, I think it's a very common thing. Um, but another thing, Zach, about your journey that I think is really important is you spent time in a very, very trust-depleted um, off-grid location known as Shawali Coat, which is uh, just a really, really tough place. Lots of places in Afghanistan are tough places, but you were there and, and at a time when the, pro the, the Village Stability Program, a program that, that I know well and, and that had some involvement in, where special forces really made an attempt to get back to our roots, to work at an indigenous level with not just Afghan commandos and special forces, our partners, but but also our informal civil society partners at the village level and kind of a modern day Magnificent Seven to help them stand up on their own. You were at the heart of that. And so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what that was like, because the relationships that you built with formal and informal partners and the level of immersion of just old school T.E. Lawrence immersion that you had to do, I think really helps people understand why Afghanistan matters so much during the collapse and after the collapse. So can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as F SF missions go, I mean, you couldn't ask for a, you know, a better mission. Um, we were in northern Shawalikot, uh, which is in uh, the very northern border of Kandahar province. Uh, we were in an air only site, you know, because of the, the ID threat level and just the terrain, really the only way to get to us was uh, via air. So all of our supplies, everything like that had to be airdropped in. 
Um, you know, we were completely surrounded by the enemy pretty much. Uh, there were three villages that we were working with, um, you know, and really talking about like the tribal aspect of warfare uh, or of Afghanistan, they were all Pashtun villages, but they had blood feuds going back, uh, years. And it was kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys there. So we kind of were asked to come by one of the tribes, um, but that caused a lot of conflict with the other tribes and just trying to navigate that, that human terrain. We had a little bit of, um, of comms issues at the first of their latency, Zach. Can you, can you just go back and just kind of set the tone and climb it a little bit on, on, on that particular location and mission? I just want to make sure we don't miss that because it's so important. Yeah, so... This that part of Shawali Kath, the Kajur Valley, there was never a sustained uh, American presence there. I mean, this is I was there in 2012 is when we ripped in, um, and the team that started setting it up a couple months before we got there, they were the first Americans really in there to to come in there and stay. Uh, the Canadians and the Australians. Uh, had done like clearing operations in there before, but never any kind of like, hey, we're going to set up a base in this area. And it was kind of like, you know, the Taliban's backyard. And even if you talk to, you know, I mentioned, talked to a lot of Afghans and I say where I was at, and they're all like, oh yeah, I, I know where that is. Wow. Yeah. Um, so let me, let's, that, you know, let's just one more question about this, Zach. Can you talk about the importance of, relationships and partnership with your your afghan special forces your interpreters and you know the people that you dealt with daily like to stay alive to 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 accomplish the mission help us understand why uh or if the that level of partnership and relationship was was critical to the type of work you did yeah it was it was definitely critical because you know we were in that area where there were really no Americans uh, that that sustained presence for a long time. A lot of the people had never even seen an American. Um, we had to actually go around and explain to people in the villages why we were there because they didn't even know September 11th had happened. Um, so that was just crazy to, you know, because this was 2012 I and mean, it was 11 years after, after the attacks. Um, so having your Afghan partners, whether your interpreter or your your special forces counterparts being there to help guide you culturally, but also be like the, the face, uh, the face of the franchise, if you will. You know, we tried to put an Afghan face on everything and let them be the, the focal point. And we just kind of, uh, stood back and helped and advise. So my, my Afghan counterpart, Captain, uh, Gorzang, you know, he was always, he was such a great guy, great speaker. Um, he would be the one, we would encourage to like get up and talk to the locals kind of thing. So it wasn't like an American thing. And then yeah. just their, their knowledge, their cultural knowledge, their knowledge of the tribes, um, the historical knowledge of the country was just instrumental for us. Um, and then this was also a time when there was a lot of green on blue incidents. So there was a green on blue incident at our VSP before we arrived that happened to the other team where uh, a special forces member was killed, um, not by an Afghan special forces member, by a, an attachment member. I think it was a PSYOPs guy. Um, yeah. So it was not an Afghan Green Beret. 
but that was just definitely something that was cognizant in our minds. So the, the need to build trust and rapport um, and rely on our, our counterparts was imperative. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people don't fully understand when we talk about Afghanistan and why it matters so much is that the rural areas where you were operating, I mean, it was truly a rural insurgency. And the guys you were talking about, Afghan special forces, you all were developing a capacity with them to go into the rural areas and really take the space away, be an antibody to the Taliban, Al-Qaeda uh, over for, for the long term. And um, I mean, it was a hell of an investment for you guys, but something that that really had a lot of effect, uh, you know, and I, and I feel like had we stayed with that kind of approach, we might have seen a different outcome. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. We were we were making a lot of inroads uh, tactically. Uh, you know, we were defeating the the enemy on multiple fronts and we were starting to make uh, operational and strategic level gains as well. Um, but then, uh, you know, around 2000, early 2013, uh, we got the message that, Hey, we're shutting down your site. It's too, it's too kinetic. It's too violent. And they, uh, they've announced a retrograde across country. And that was possibly one of the, the worst feelings, uh, that I had had up to that point, because it's like everything we'd worked for at this point, and you're going to pull the plug already kind of thing, all the blood, sweat and tears that you know, we had exhausted just in that one little valley because, you know, this valley, I try to explain to people, you know, there were many peaceful areas of Afghanistan, like Masjid Sharif, Kabul, you know, they were, you know, very prosperous for many Afghans, but in Shah Wali Khan, it was kind of like either like, uh, like West Virginia is what I would explain to it, like a very rural insurgency where everyone was pro Taliban. There was no electricity. Um, it, it was like going back into the 14th century in that part of the country. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, just so much in, in what you just said. Um, and I felt the same thing when the departure was announced at that time, having been involved with the village stability program from the beginning, I had a lot of relationships. I had made a lot of promises myself to, to various elders at sites like yours across the country. And all of a sudden I was getting phone calls. It was almost Zach, like a harbinger, like a like foreshadowing of what was coming that happened in 2021. But I was I don't know about you, but I was getting calls and updates and and a lot of people got killed and tortured when we abandoned those villages without warning and when we had made promises to Yeah, absolutely. That 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 happened to our village. It was the worst thing to watch. Uh, uh we had to bulldoze um our site. And then uh, we did a massive operation to exfil out of there, but we left ISR on our, on our site just to see what would happen when we left. And, you know, the Taliban came in and had a huge celebrate, celebratory party right on our site um, and then rounded up anyone who supported us. Right. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know, ISR is intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. And it's it's a it's a way to look down on for with staying power and see what's happening. Uh, kind of the eye in the sky stuff. And that must have been really, really difficult to watch. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was heartbreaking when you. Uh, you spend your whole life trying to achieve a goal, you get there, you, you know, you're doing, um, yeah. you know, the Green Beret mission dream. Um, and you're succeeding at it. Um, 
And then just to have the, the rug pulled out from underneath you because of political reasons, you know, um, it, it, it was, it was soul crushing yeah. to say the least. Yeah. It, it impacted me so much. I actually wrote it into the play, uh, last out that we did so, so that we could always help people understand, you know, not only the village mission, but what it did when we left. And, you know, ironically it's now become, we're going to bring the play back and, and it's now become representative of the overall abandonment. Um, but just the emotional pain that goes with that, I have to imagine because what you didn't say, and I respect your professionalism for this, but what you didn't say about why you left the army and, and, and speaks volumes to me. So I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. And I'd like you to talk about this amazing decision that you made um, when you left the army to, 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 to do something different and what that was. Yeah. Um, you know, just that, that whole experience of in 2013, they made that, I guess, I don't know if it was a political decision, but you know, a mistimed strategic decision of like pulling out, but then telling your enemy, like, Hey, we're going to leave. Um, you know, that, that breaks the basic fundamentals of like, never tell, your enemy what you're going to do kind of thing right. uh, especially when it comes to an insurgency that when they're playing the long game uh so you know it just left a sour taste um you know and i was told by uh, a special forces era um mac v saw a guy one time you know he was given some professional development to young captains and his advice was you know, you've got to make the decision right now as an officer, either you're going to be about your teammates or you're going to be about your career because the army is going to put you in a, uh, in a uh, situation where you're going to have to choose. So make your choice now. Um, and I had made my, my choice there that I was going to be about my teammates. Um, and after, uh, after Afghanistan, you know, that left a sour taste in my mouth for a long time. We came home. Um, and it's just, you know, the bureaucracy and uniform inspections and haircuts. And, you know, I was not a good garrison soldier. I loved being deployed. I loved doing all that stuff. Happy to be up in the mountains, you know, burning our own feces and, you know, living off of the local diet and stuff. That didn't bother me. But uh, I got really frustrated with the garrison life. And then we had another, uh, another trip to Honduras where, again, politics really made our mission difficult. Um, you know, my guys got hemmed up for doing, doing the right thing. And, you know, I, I took full responsibility for it. And, you know, because I had made that decision that I was going to be able to be about the guys. And at that point, I just kind of like, you know what, uh, I think I'm done. Um, looking at what my career was going to be like, uh, for the rest of the, I wanted to stay in the army. That was always my original plan. But when I sat down with my branch manager and he was like, Hey, you've never done any staff time. Uh, you know, your options are Fort Polk or go up to the Pentagon. And I was just like, man, I'm going to be behind a desk for probably the next 10 years. It's not for me. So I decided to leave. Uh, I originally went into the outdoor industry because I absolutely love uh, being outside in the woods in any capacity. Right. And, and uh, it, but it was a business and uh, I realized business wasn't for me. And I had really loved uh, being an instructor in the military and teaching and coaching and mentoring. And I love history. Uh, so I made the decision in uh, a 
couple of years after I got out of the army um, to start teaching. And I, I fell in love with it and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah, I just, I, I'm so grateful for so much of, the, so for so many of the decisions that you made. And, um, you know, I had to make a similar decision when I left the military. I'd been selected for battalion command and I walked away from it because I just couldn't deal with the way things were going in Afghanistan, with the way Jim Gant had been treated. And, um, but a similar decision that I had to make. And, um, I, you know, I really respect, but even more so, I love the fact that you went into teaching and, um, tell me what that experience was like coming out of, um, special forces and, and, and how do you feel like it contributed to this horrific abandonment that happened and your role in it? Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I got out, uh, I went through NYU, which is supposed to be one of the, you know, more prestigious. Uh, master's programs in education, um, and thank God the GI Bill was paying for it because um, it was very expensive. But in reality, like during the program, I felt like everything they were teaching me was stuff I had learned uh, as within special forces or being a leader in the military. It was just uh, translated differently. You know, so yeah. they had different terms. Um, so much of my teaching foundation, I realized was from my, my experience in the military and how much that benefited me, uh, in the classroom as well, especially working in a school district with a high immigrant and refugee population. Many of the kids coming from countries that I had actually been to. Uh, so that was very helpful having that cultural knowledge. Um, so in 2019, that's when I started Operation Socrates, which is the nonprofit to help encourage other service members and veterans become teachers to utilize that leadership and military experience to kind of lead the next generation. Um, so that, that's kind of what ended up there. And then I started teaching. First, I did sixth grade, and then I was doing eighth grade uh, social studies. And yeah. again, high, high immigrant, high refugee population. Um, I learned a lot about the, the immigrant and refugee population, um, just their, their experience, um, and continue to build on the, the culture and relationships. So when, uh, when Afghanistan was falling, you know, I, I was thinking of all my students from that part of the world. Um, and especially, uh, I have a lot of female Muslim students, uh, and I just, I didn't feel like I could live with myself if I knew I had the capabilities and the know-how to, to help the people of Afghanistan. Um, I couldn't really look them in the eye and uh, know that I, I didn't try. And that's kind of what really pulled me um, by the heartstrings to get back into it and get my guys out from Afghanistan and their families. Well, let's jump into that, man. Um, set the scene for us. Uh, it's, uh, it's summertime. 2021. Um, how did it go down for you and, and how did you respond when Afghanistan fell? Yeah, so I was in contact. I, I mean, I saw the writing on the wall. Um, I think it's like July when uh, Mazari Sharif fell and, and some of the nor northern cities fell. I saw what was going to happen. And I reached out, my interpreter had reached out to me 
Um, I reached out to a couple of the Afghan SF guys I worked with and then started trying to build a pathway for them out. And, you know, I did the normal route and contacted the state department. You know, I was just talking to interns or, or, you know, no one of influence. And then I tried to contact my, both my, uh, congressional representatives. And again, I was getting some like interns sending me the same, same websites that I had already looked at at the, uh, on the state department. So, uh, at that point it was August. I was at my family cabin in Scandinavia, Wisconsin just kind of relaxing with family um, as Afghanistan was really falling apart. And even though I was on vacation, I was spending, you know, hours on the phone, uh, on the internet, trying to find out some, some pathway for them out, which I kept running into roadblock and roadblock. And then, uh, you know, I sat down at the cabin one night after, you know, going out with the family and I just sent like a SOS distress symbol signal on uh, LinkedIn. Just, hey, does anyone know how to get anyone out of Afghanistan? I'm, I'm trying to get a couple guys, but I'm, I'm getting stonewalled. And, uh, you know, Kurt sent me a message on uh, a direct message on LinkedIn saying, hey, uh, you know, we're putting together some other SF guys are putting together a, a group to help get uh, Afghans out. And uh, that's how I got pulled in. Yeah, I just I love that story. And I think it kind of I don't know that it comes through as loud in the book because it's hard to do that. But just, you know, for anyone listening to this is the you know, just the power of connections, because you didn't know Kirk Mueller. I knew Kirk Mueller. He had served with me in the village stability program. We were old friends. But even he and I had lost contact over the years, as happens when you both retire. And and it was really the Afghanistan crisis that brought us back together and got us focused myopically first on getting my Afghan SF buddy, Nizam, out. And then, you know, it broadened. But I just, I think back to that that SOS that you did in the blind on LinkedIn and what a dramatic role you played in Pineapple. I mean, truly strategic. And I think, man, what would have happened if... Kirk hadn't just answered that one email. Yeah. I mean, as much as I like to sort of dog on social media and all that, uh, you know, using LinkedIn was such a powerful tool in that moment, uh, especially because, you know, I didn't know Kurt. So I just clicked on his, uh, his profile and I saw that he was a former SF guy. And it was kind of like that bonus CDs where it's like, okay, this is a guy I can trust. Yeah. And within hours, you came into so the, our signal room in Pineapple was growing exponentially. This was still before the ISIS K explosion, obviously. And um, you came in, and when within hours, you started making suggestions. You started looking for ways to um, contribute. And I mean, it came up on my radar really quickly. What was going through your mind as you came into Pineapple and started looking at options? Yeah. So. I, I remember like the first day, I don't know how long I had been there, but, you know, typically whenever I, I join an organization, I usually keep my mouth shut for a little bit just to kind of see who's who in the zoo and see what the personalities are. Um, so I don't know how long I did that for. Maybe it was just a couple hours or whatever, but I saw, you know, I saw the names in the room and uh, I was immediately intimidated. I don't know if the word or just kind of. You know, I saw Jim Ganton there. I saw Perry Blackburn. Um, I had recognized your name. 
uh, Jason Redman was in there, uh, um, Mark Nooch. And those just, just were names that I knew. I mean, I had known these guys for years because they were years ahead of me in the SF pipeline and they had done amazing things in Afghanistan. Uh, so I was like, wow, am I in the right room? Like, you know, kind of thing. Um, but then just with the, the pressure building, um, and the proverbial clock ticking away, uh, I just felt like, well, well we got to do something kind of thing. So I was just throwing, throwing things on the wall and seeing what was going to stick. Well, they certainly stuck my friend. And, you know, one of the things for me in all of this was I struggled with getting back in the game. I felt like I was definitely not, uh, the best draft choice for this kind of work. I'd been out of the game for a long time, but you know, what I did have was relationships. And one of the things that my father and some great NCOs taught me was to know when to let other people lead. And you approached me, uh, pretty early on with a plan. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that plan. I mean, I want people to read the story because I think the full uh, scope of the story and in, 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 in reading it in, in, in a narrative is super impactful. But talk to me about um, you came you came with a plan, with an idea and an inspiration. Talk a little bit about that and, and what you had in mind putting in play. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I always loved about SF for special operations in general um, and just being a student of history is I love reading stories about like audacious plans, you know, like any plan should have a, a degree of audacity. Right. Um, so like, I just have always loved uh, stories like that or missions like that. And when I, when we, I was really brainstorming, like, how are we going to do this? Um, of, I have a poster of Harriet Tubman in my classroom. And for whatever reason, I don't know how it happened, but that popped into my head of, you know, Harriet Tubman and kind of like the light bulb went off. It's like, oh, the Underground Railroad. Um, and then I was thinking like, okay, how did Harriet Tubman do it? You know, I remember, you know, all the stories of, you know, her carrying the lamp and, and guiding these people out following the North Star, um, kind of like that. And, and then it was like, well, how do we marry up that scenario um, with our capabilities as, um, Green Berets or special operations guys, you know, near and far signals, you know, all the, the standard trade craft that we bring to the table. And then it was like, well, how do we do this in a virtual environment from thousands of miles away? Um, you know, I started brainstorming that. And then most importantly, the one thing I really needed was, you know, on any kind of, um, entry into a closed environment like H Kyle was, right. uh, you always need, you always need someone on the inside, you know? And then I was thinking of, um, when the, the Norwegians and the British SAS took down a, a nuclear power plant in Norway, you know, they had a, a Norwegian scientist on the inside, basically unlocking doors for them so they could get in. So like, that was the next step of like, okay, now we need someone on the inside and then we're going to use you know, our tradecraft and skills to help guide our, our Afghan friends and families to that person on the inside who can support them. So that's kind of like where my initial brainstorming session happened. Yeah. And, and what's really, uh, what I love about that whole thing, Zach, is that it, it all came down to four feet. It came down to a four foot hole in the fence and, and a couple of guys on the inside of that fence that fit the description that you're talking about 
uh, Jesse and John from the 82nd Airborne. And to be clear, you know, this was a plan because up until that point, we were calling different people and working the phones like many other groups. But what you had put forward was a plan, a very deliberate plan that would involve tradecraft and and link up and 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 the individuals on the other side, Jesse and John, company commander and first sergeant, told me in an interview that one of the things that really struck them because their phones were blowing up from all these people asking for help that they just couldn't give was that you had a plan and the plan was militarily sound and it was a way to present responsibly people that were highly vetted that they could never figure out on their side of the wire. Yeah, and one thing that really helped as well is the fact that the people that we were shepherding were also really knowledgeable and street smart guys as well. Um, you know, their their own trade craft of our Afghan special forces brothers, you know, was also instrumental because they were pretty smart guys and they were they were navigating the checkpoints pretty wisely as well. So they sure were, and they were very tactically sound. And and it was in, in post interviews we've learned that they really you know, implemented training and, uh, ex, you know, expectations on their family to be tactically sound as well, because they're moving 80 year old women and young kids. And so it wasn't like they were doing a military operation on their own. They were extremely vulnerable and had to, you know, the whole family had to exercise military discipline. So how did you bring all that together? This thing that ultimately became the pineapple express. What, when you look back on it now, um, what was the key that allowed this to happen in such a dynamic and efficient way? Um, patience and trust, I would say, were the two biggest things. Just having patience, um, not only in Jesse and John, uh, relying on you know those windows of opportunity, um, the patience of not trying to rush the gate like uh, a lot of people were trying to do. And then having trust, uh, Afghans having trust in us, um, us having trust in the Afghans, um, that, that was very important because they put a lot of trust in us. Um, there was a lot of other people they could have reached out to, um, and a lot of different methods they could have used to try to get in. Um, so I think those were the two things that were pretty instrumental. So for those of you listening, if you listen to Zach's voice right now, the one of the things that we couldn't capture in, in the in the book was uh, the way that he actually communicated to the entire formation, um, over 100 shepherds and um, well over 1,000 um, Afghan partners. And he would, when he communicated with the shepherds, he would get on there and uh, almost like a, a pilot in an emergency landing <laughs> That's the only way I know to communicate it, Zach, but like, the, you know, like a plane that's going down for an emergency landing and the pilot comes on and he's just as calm and level as anything you can imagine. And I still, in my mind, I have those uh, transmissions of you doing on signal, just telling everybody it's going to be all right. We got this. Just help your people stay calm. We're going to move a few at a time, slow and steady. And you just did this over and over. I don't think you ever slept. But I know that you had to be churning inside um, when all that was going on. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I don't even know how to explain. I'm the most impatient human being I know. Um, so like sitting and just driving my, my kids to camp today, like I just, it burns my soul, like having to wait in traffic and things like that. But 
Um, I was constantly reminded to, I had a, uh, a sergeant major when I was in seventh group by the name of Randy Tyson, who, uh, Doing gave very me well. a piece, yeah, he gave me a, a piece of advice one time that really just stuck with me. And he said, uh, calm is contagious, Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, I just remembered those words. Um, and I, his words were just ringing in my head during the whole time. So even though internally, you know, I was. I was freaking out, but, um, if I could force myself to be calm externally, um, then hopefully everyone else would follow suit. What was going through your mind when those first Afghan commandos were, um, testing out the pineapple express and you had no comms with them? Uh, well, we had the first dry run, um, where the window closed. And I felt after that, I was like, well, this is pretty sound. They got pretty, uh, they got right up to the wall. It just didn't work out with the timing with uh, Jesse and John. Right. But I felt the, pl- the play kind of proved that the plan would work. Um, so when we recopped and went the next day uh, and they went, uh, comms went black, I assumed it was from the jammers that were on the base. Um, so we lost comms for a while. And then I was, I was really worried that they weren't going to be able to navigate the canal in the darkness or that they got picked up by uh, a Taliban patrol. So I was really just kind of holding my breath. Um, and then, then we got the message from them that they were in inside the wire and it was just, uh, I, I try to be pretty stoic and I don't get too fired up for things, but I, I just wanted to scream to the high heavens, um, when that happened. But I wasn't even able to do that because my wife had just pulled in the uh, the driveway and my kid was sleeping in the back seat, so I couldn't even let it out. You know, I just had to give like a, a silent fist pump. Yeah, and I, I think that's what a lot of people, you know, for the shepherds around the country and the world, actually, who were involved in this, and what a lot of folks will be surprised to understand that that kind of intensity was happening. And, you know, we're sitting at the breakfast table, we're at ball games and, you know, but, but executing the kind of things that we once did in combat, but, you know, obviously the people enduring the real risk and the real heartache were those Afghan partners, uh, wading through those, you know, feces filled trenches, but at the same time, trying to do what you were doing and what the shepherds were doing while, while keeping it away from your family was not an easy thing, was it? No, not at all, especially when, you know, both my wife and I have a very busy life and a, a lot of moving pieces with small children. So that opened the door for um, hundreds of Afghans to move through, and, and they did, and we talk about that in the Pineapple Express. But then it all shut down, and, and um, we, we found ourselves, you know, back uh, in our lives trying to make sense of things as the dust cleared. And several of the um, Afghan partners um, came to where you are in New York and you've helped them resettle. What has life been like for them? And and what would you tell people about resettlement that they don't know? Um, Yeah. So my interpreter was one of the the lucky ones who made it out. Um, I'm not successful in getting the other guys uh, that I wanted to get out yet. Um, but for the ones that have made it here, it's been a, I would say it'd be, it's been a very positive experience for them. Everyone that I have talked to has just, you know, let me know how gracious the 
American people have been and how supportive they have been of their arrival and their resettlement. Um, I was blown away, I think, by the support that came across party lines. Um, you know, people, I think they have an I they have different visions of who would actually support the Afghans when they got here um, because of narratives, you know, political narratives, but that was not the case. I mean, support came from every uh, spectrum uh, on the political line. Uh, people were volunteering their time. They were dropping off cookies and food and um, baby cribs and donating uh, everything you could think of. It was, I was really blown away by what the local community did here for my interpreter, uh, Muhammad. Um, and, and that's kind of been what I've heard from the other Afghan special forces guys that are in different parts of the country. Um, so, you know, hopefully this, uh, the, the book will bring even more light to it and, you know, support those guys throughout the duration because they're going to continue to need uh, support moving forward. It's just like the American veterans, you know, when we get out of the military and we make, make that transition into civilian life, well, they're going to have that as well times a hundred because not only are they going to lose their sense of purpose of going from being a special operations member to a civilian, but they're doing it in a different country where maybe they're, they're not as fluent in the language. Their, their family isn't, uh, you know, they don't know the culture. They weren't really expecting to come here. A lot of them were kind of enjoying retired life, you know, in peaceful parts of Afghanistan. And they had planned on staying and trying to build the country up. And now they were thrust into to coming here. So they're going to need things like jobs. They're going to need uh, um, youth development. You know, so hopefully this lights a spark to continue to support them here in the U.S. I love that, man. I've got just a couple of questions before we close. The first one is, imagine President Biden, uh, Secretary Blinken, and General Milley were sitting in a room, and it was just them and you, and you had an opportunity, you had, you had 10 minutes with them, and they were just going to listen. What would you say to them? And what would you say to them to include what needs to be done still? I mean, I... I don't think I would, I, I would go like accusatory, um, you know, like the, the JFK quote, you know, victory has a thousand, uh, victory has a thousand, uh, fathers and defeat is an orphan. Um, but I would have a lot of questions, um, you know, just a, a lot of questions to see, like, I without being able to armchair quarterback someone, I would want a lot of questions answered of just basic fundamentals of like, you know, like when you're a, just, I was just a lowly captain, but you know, you always have a pace plan, like on every aspect of your mission. That was always something that was drilled into our head. Primary, primary, al- yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Primary alternate contingency emergency. So like enemy, most probable course of action enemy most likely uh course of action worst case scenario what's going to happen kind of thing so you should kind of have those aspects and planning any operation of like what's the worst thing that the enemy can do you know so we can at least prepare for that in emergency scenario 
Um, so I would just want to know, like, what was the pace place pace plan? Like, what uh, what was the assessment? You know, because again, I, I was just a lowly captain. Um, but even in 2013, where we were at Shawali Cot, and I just had a very narrow um, experience on the whole Afghanistan thing. But I'm like, man, this uh, this isn't going to be good when we pull out. You know, if we're already announcing it in 2013, you know, they can just buy their time. And I had given the uh, the country two years in my own personal assessment. Um, obviously, I was even off. But yeah, I, I would just want to ask a lot of those questions to see, you know, what was going in the planner's head that allowed for this, like, you know, massive blind spot to occur. Yeah. No, that's really good. I, I appreciate your tone with it. And I think that needs to be the tone because this isn't a Republican or Democrat issue. It's an American issue. And there's plenty of responsibility and accountability for every administration, all four of them. Um, and, you know, I, I the other thing, Zach, that I believe and I talk about this in the epilogue is I believe there needs to be accountability with military senior leaders. I don't think they get a pass here. Um, I, I certainly think that there should be after action reviews, hot washes, internal reviews within the special ops community. It, it, it is striking to me that there was not a single special forces A team on the ground, not only at HKIA, but leading up to the withdrawal for several months. And I don't understand that calculus. And I don't understand why, why our special operations military, senior military leaders we're not trying to drive that home. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I, yeah. I think that uh, the fact that no one was held accountable from the the military leadership, I think that really stung a lot of veterans. Just because, you know, people have been relieved for far, far less. Yeah. Um, you, you know, even just saying the wrong thing, or you know, some someone within their command screws up and then they are held responsible, even though they didn't do the action themselves. Um, so to see something so catastrophic occur and then just no one held re responsible. Um, I, I think that really riled up a lot of uh, Americans in particular, considering how much, you know, blood, sweat and treasure was spent in Afghanistan over 20 years. Yeah. Let me give and you some yeah, go and ahead. Then to, and then to not even, uh, you know, face the American public, I think uh, also really just added fuel to the fire. Yeah, let me give you some stats. In a in a survey by More in Common, a, a, a political nonprofit that tries to obviously look for what we have in common versus what we're where we're different. They did a study called After Kabul. I'll send it to you, and we'll, we'll put it in. Uh, we'll put it in the link. The show links here. But um, seven hundred and seventy-five thousand U.S. Afghan war veterans. Okay, close to fifty percent, almost fifty percent of Americans feel betrayed by the Afghan withdrawal. Over fifty percent of veterans and seventy-three percent of Afghan war veterans feel betrayed. Thoughts on that? Uh, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Um, yeah, I, I, I still haven't really found the words to properly articulate. Uh, I'm not really, you know, as you talked with my wife, Amanda, I'm not the best at, at, at expressing feelings. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it really, it's, 
it's a deep wound that I think will last for a long time. Uh, luckily, you know, you know, the Vietnam veteran generation uh, has experience in it. So they, yeah. I, I feel like a lot of the Afghan uh, war veterans now have even more of a kindred spirit with the, the Vietnam generation. I agree, brother. I agree. Last question. When your sons pick up Operation Pineapple Express and read it one day, what do you hope that they'll take away from that story and your role in it as their dad? Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I wonder if it'll open up a lot of, uh, um, more questions for them. Cause I, I don't see it for C my, my sons are, you know, just turned five and one is two. And, uh, I don't see it for C myself being open about Afghanistan with them. Um, right. So I think if they ever pick it up, one, I don't even know if I'll, I don't even know if I'll tell them about it. Maybe I will when they're older, you know, maybe they pick up the book and they read it and they, they will probably have a lot of questions. Um, but I really hope, you know, the biggest thing that it, it brings to them is, is pride for their father. You know, there, there comes a point in every man's life where the pendulum swings from really focusing on making their, their own father proud. But once you have children, you know, you kind of live your life to, to make your, your sons proud. So if I hope they walk away and, and feel pride for their father. Um, and, you know, cause at the end of the day, it's about the man next to you, you know, as cliche as everything sounds, uh, that people talk about, but it, it is about the man next to you. My father always said, you know, pick your friends by people that you would want to be in a foxhole with. Yeah. And right. It's like the old band of brothers speech, like he who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother from this day to the end. And he never talks about race. He never talks about religion. Um, doesn't talk about nationality. And at the end of the day, it's the guy fighting next to you. That's so well said. Well, I can tell you this, my friend, you can have them call me and I will tell them how uh, a former Green Beret turned school teacher um, helped a thousand people find freedom, better life. And they're alive because of uh, their dad's actions. And um, I mean that um, what you have done with such humility and just quiet professionalism is is frankly a model for what it means to be a Green Beret, what it means to be an American and what it means to be a citizen. Um, so I'm proud to know you and I'm super, super honored and just grateful for what you um, did in, in Task Force Pineapple. I know that had you not, and a lot of people played a big role and I get that and I'm not diminishing that, but um, some played strategic roles and you certainly did. And um, as long as I'm alive, I'll make sure nobody ever forgets that. Well, I appreciate it, man, but it never would have happened without, you know, you putting the band together and, uh, you know, your leadership on the helm of the helm of the pirate ship. Uh, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of people out there who are speakers and they, they go around and talking about leadership and then, then you pull up their resume and it's like, this guy hasn't done anything, you know? Um, but you know, that's where you stand head and shoulders above all those other people because of your background. And then, then pulling this coming out of retirement and then pulling this out of your back pocket somehow, which, you know, maybe it's your magnum opus. Maybe you still have more cards uh, that are up your <laughs> sleeve, but definitely, uh, you know, bring so much credibility to everything you talk about. 
I think I'll uh, I'll hand it over to you and let you take it from here, my friend. I'm uh, I'm ready to I'm ready to go fishing. But um, uh, yeah, I hear you. This year has uh, added so many years to my life. Like yeah. I think, especially after the fall of H Kaya, like yeah. those five months afterwards yeah. were were absolutely excruciating and even more heartbreaking than the actual yeah. H Kaya operation. I agree. I agree. I had to, I had to double down on therapy and, and a whole range of other things to just get myself in a different place. But, um, you know, here we sit and I know you and I will always, uh, um, fight the good fight on this thing. I hope that everybody listening to this will lean in as well, because we got, we've got to do what we can to make this right and prevent it from ever happening again. Zach, anything that you'd like to say about, uh, pineapple or our Afghan brothers and sisters, just anything along this topic that we haven't covered? No, I, I mean, there's, there's still guys over there, you know, like it doesn't, we did great things. You know, we got a lot of people out, but, um, I don't feel like I can be especially happy about it because I know the, the, the original guy that I still started this whole thing to get out is still not out. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. So like, who did a reconnaissance I, I like, airfield for everybody else did a reconnaissance of the airfield and, and still didn't make it. Yeah. And so until he's out, you know, it's, no. it's still a massive pain in my heart. And I feel like it's another ghost that I have to dance with from Afghanistan. I hear you brother. Well, listen, man, thanks for everything that you do continue to do. Thanks for, um, shaping the, the minds of our young students and uh, bringing teachers into the fold from the soft community. If there's ever anything we can do for you here, man, you know the deal, but just super grateful to you, Zach. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. An honor to work with you again. Absolutely. And to everybody listening, thanks for being on with us. We'll continue to bring um, various influencers and leaders on here who had such a prolific role, both in pineapple and outside pineapple. but really none more so than my friend Zach Lois. So thanks for listening. Thanks for what you do. And we'll see you next time on the rooftop.